later on, they just figure, oh, we'll just renegotiate later. And when you have hard money day one, you can't really do that. But if you don't, if you don't, there's that's the strategy that a lot of buyers use is we'll just ask for a credit later after inspections we'll ask for a credit. And that's great. You can do that for a deal. But I'm just telling you that if that becomes your strategy, brokers are going to be less likely to choose you. And I know brokers don't choose you. The seller does. But brokers have the influence on the sellers. So if you have that relationship with the broker, we've gotten a lot of deals that we did not offer the highest. We didn't even do the most hard money, but we got the deal because the broker told the seller, these guys are going to close and they are not going to ask for a credit and they're not going to renegotiate. Welcome to the Lion's Den, the real estate podcast for perspicacious investors who know they have the strength to succeed in the lucrative commercial multifamily industry, being expert advice on your way to becoming a top performer. I'm your host, Adam Parrish. I have two of my co-hosts today, Lisa L. Parrish and Donato Callahan. How's everybody doing today? Great. Great. We miss Fia. Yeah, unfortunately. Yes. It happens. <laughs> oh, she had the word of the day. I just realized. Oh, What's the word of the day? Here. Relentless. Oh, I can do that one. Look that up, look there. You can do a relentless on top of your head. Relentless, unstopping, always moving forward, continuing to proceed in the face of obstacles. Relentless. Did you just name that off the top of your head from the computer that's in your brain? I did. I went back to the time I read Merriam-Webster Dictionary in third grade, read with the word relentless. Do you have a photographic memory? Do you have a, I don't. I don't actually have a photographic memory. Not like in a very nice CSI kind of way. Sometimes you some pieces. Write down some sticky notes and stick it in there. The obstacle of today's episode is when should I submit an offer, LOI, and how do I negotiate the purchase and sale agreement? For the first question today, I'm going to go with Lisa. What are your thoughts on hard money day one? Hard money day one. Okay, let me just explain first what that means. Hard money day one, when we first started the business, that wasn't a thing. When 2009 market was much more buyer's market. So I had never heard of that. I'm not even sure if that was even around. I remember the first time a broker told us that we had to put down hard money day one, and I was just shocked. And probably a lot of the new investors will be shocked. But it was a deal we really wanted, so we did it. What it means is typically you put down earnest money. Like if you ever bought residential real estate, you put down earnest money. Once you negotiate the contract, that money does not go hard or non-refundable for your inspection period. So usually you have 30 days, you know, like a free look period, 30 days to do your inspections and everything else. And then if there's something wrong with the property or you decide, or maybe you couldn't raise the money or you can't get the loan or whatever it is, you, you can back out. Um, so it was always, you know, a lot less stress. You'd have 30 days to figure out whether you wanted to buy the deal. Probably about five years ago when it became a really hot market and there were people tripping over themselves to try to get a deal. That's the first time. And I had a deal that I really wanted and a broker relationship, a good one. Um, but he told me seller is only going to accept offers that have hard money day one. That means you negotiate the contract. And as soon as the co contract is negotiated within typically three to five days, you have to deposit, you know, it depends on the amount, depends on how many, how much competition that you're dealing with. 
Hmm. Um, but there was a time where it started out where it was 10 grand hard. You know, you, maybe you do a hundred thousand dollars earnest money and you're 10 of it. Meaning like, if you change your mind, you're going to lose that money. Then it became a hundred thousand hard, 200,000 hard. We actually did $400,000 hard money on our first Texas deal a couple of years ago, $400,000. That means this is with Ryan and Tyler. That means that we put out $400,000 in earnest money goes into escrow and we did not have time. I mean, if we found anything during the inspection, we're kind of screwed. So there are different ways, depending on, you know, this, depending on the market and how much competition there is, you can negotiate. We always negotiate certain carve-outs, but you can negotiate extra carve-outs. A carve-out is something like an exception. So things like seller default, seller defaults, we get our money back. Condemnation or acts of God and, you know, the buildings burn down. You're negotiating what needs to happen for us to be able to get our money back. So you definitely will put in things. If we're in a more of a buyer's market though, um, at that point, you have a lot more as a buyer, you have, you have the ability to negotiate much stronger. So hard money day one is just one of the negotiation tactics used during a very competitive market, like I said, five years ago. I know you've said that hard money day one is becoming a lot less prevalent these days. It is. We're still doing it. It depends on how much competition there is. If there's a bidding war, that could make the difference. For a while, that made the difference when we had hard money. And then we had brokers coming back when there was enough competition. We had brokers coming back saying, yeah, you put in hard money, but someone else put in, you know, offered more. So then it became... Everyone's offering hard money. How much? Who has the highest? That's how, that's why we did the 400,000 because that was how we negotiated the deal. You know, when you really want a, a deal, you're going to do as much due diligence as you possibly can. If you can negotiate a free look period, even if it's a week, then you could do the inspection really quick beforehand. But again, you know, you're up against a lot of other people in a hard market. So when we're deciding on how to negotiate, there are many factors that go into the decision, namely one, you know, what kind of market are we in? How good of a deal is it? What kind of price can we get? Because we may offer more advantageous terms to the seller in exchange for a lower price. So your negotiations, you really have to know what kind of market that you're in. Real estate's a game of timing. And in my opinion, the game changer. So it seems so simple, but when you're a seller in a seller's market, it's amazing. You can hold your ground and pretty much get what you want. And same thing, if you're a buyer in a buyer's market, you can pretty much call the shots. Real estate's a game of timing. And I would say, get out your crystal ball and see if you can, you know, try to time the market the best that you can. For me, that's, I think what gave us the most success was the timing, selling in the right time, buying in the right time. Donato, when should you submit an LOI? Ooh, I have a strong opinion on this. So I type, I like to break the process up into three phases. Phase one is everything from deal sourcing all the way up to signing your LOI and PSA. Phase two is getting from your LOI and PSA to closing. And phase three is getting from closing all the way to your eventual sale. You should be submitting an LOI. That's the question, right? Once you submit an LOI, once you've fully completed phase one. And phase one means that you have, in my opinion, you've found the deal, you have analyzed all the T12, the rent roll, and you've drafted questions for the broker, got those questions answered, you've gone back and readdressed your underwriting that you performed on the deal to get in line with the answers you received from the broker. You performed a CMA and a loss to lease analysis and a market rent premium analysis to understand what your unit renovations are going to yield on top of your current loss to lease projections. 
You then take all that information, you summarize it, see if there's any flaws, any holes in your analysis and why this deal makes sense. Go back to the broker, get more questions answered, bring it back. At that point, take your litany of files and information, boil it down into one or two pages, take it to sponsors that you should have been talking to for the entire process of phase one, and ideally before phase one, have their relationship already going. And finally, once you have a summarized one pager and a broker and a sponsor that you have a relationship with, bring that deal to the sponsor. Say, I know this deal meets your criteria for these reasons. Here's a summarized way to look at the deal. And then if the sponsor says, Yes, I like the deal, let's move forward. Then you submit an LOI with the sponsor. At that point, with the sponsor on board. And the reason you have to do that is if I came to you and said, Hey, will you co-sign? this uh, loan for me for a brand new Maserati. The contract's already written. I've already signed it. You get absolutely no say in the interest rate or the terms or any of the issues that come with buying a Maserati, but I just need you to sign this document. You would never do it because part of the value of a sponsor is the years of experience and wisdom they have in dealing with brokers, analyzing properties, and mitigating risk. Yep. You always wait to sign the LOI or submit an LOI until you have a sponsor with you. That is going to be the best possible course you have to success. Granted, in markets that we were just coming out of 2021, 2022, when we were getting our first start, we didn't know what we were doing. So we were submitting LOIs without having a sponsor behind us. The way, and because of that, we looked at 96, 97 properties and didn't get a win. We didn't get an agreed upon offer. So we did it the wrong way and we did it the hard way and we learned a lot of lessons. And the first time we actually went to LOI with a sponsor behind us, we got that deal. It's amazing. <laughs> right. So that's when you should submit an LOI. That's why you should submit an LOI at the time that your sponsor has signed on. It also prevents you from having to submit an LOI without one, failing to get a sponsor and then going back to the broker and saying, oh, sorry, I know you gave us a chance but we're at the block out and the broker goes, great, thanks. I'm going to put your name in the blacklist and we're never going to do business with you again. Great. And all of a sudden you are, you know, on a blacklist for that market and you got to go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Hope that answers the question. Can I, can I, can I just mention a couple of things to follow up on that? That was Mm -hmm. a great answer, Donato. You also want to make sure you talk to a lender because you want to know what kind of loan that the property would qualify for. There's certain markets where we don't want to be doing bridge loans or adjustable rates, depending on where the rates are. You want your a lender, like I'll take it to CBRE, my lender for Freddie Fannie agency loans first, because at least in this market, because I want I want a long-term fixed rate. Um, mm. And I think the agency loans make a lot more sense in this at this point. So you have them underwrite it to see what kind of leverage or what kind of loan amount that they're going to be able to give you. Because I see a lot of people doing underwriting with interest rates that don't make sense you don't want to have to change all of that later. And also insurance, you know, talk to your insurance brokers to find out where you think that things are going to fall in that particular area, because insurance is very area specific. Um, Mm. And it adjusts a lot depending on what area that you're in or how close you are to the coast. You also want to, you know, make sure that you've got your money raising team. Some, a lot of newer students need to bring in an outside money raiser. If you need to bring in an outside money raiser, you should be just like you're doing with sponsors. You should be talking to them and building that team regularly. But you want to talk to the money raisers. You want to make sure if you have to bring those in, 
that they're on board with it as well. So that you're putting your whole team together. Seems like a lot of upfront work to do before you submit an LOI and you're going to be able to get the deal, but it definitely will help with your success. Um, yeah, you just have to be relentless. Oh man, I forgot the, the word relentless. <laughs> I stole it. One point to the it. godfather. Yeah. And I also, I also suggest, as you were saying, that the sponsor should be involved or writing the LOI or involved with it. The sponsor also should talk to the broker. The biggest thing for me is the brokers need to know that you can close the deal. And it's great if you can build those relationships, but if you haven't actually closed a deal before, they really need to feel comfortable with who the sponsor is to know that that sponsor knows what they're doing and is going to make sure that things are facilitated correctly. So for me as a sponsor, I'm calling the broker. I want to also find out from the broker, what kind of competition are we dealing with? How many offers do you think you're going to get? And that doesn't mean you're going to get the, you know, brokers will tell you, oh, we're going to get 20 offers. Um, mm -hmm. But you can still get a good idea. And I had a good enough relationship with my brokers because they knew we were going to continue the relationship. So they were actually honest with me on deals because they actually wanted me to get the deal. And they know that if the price is pushed too high, I might be out. So mm -hmm. if you can build that kind of relationship where they want you to do the deal, they actually will help you. They'll help you figure out what buyer or what seller will accept. So I think you can really summarize, at least from my head, that make the plan, then submit the paperwork. Yeah. Make the but, plan. But the problem though, and I think everything we're saying makes a lot of sense, but in reality, mm -hmm. if you're trying to submit a bunch of deal, a bunch of LOIs, which is what a lot of students are taught is just submitting a bunch of LOIs. Maybe one will get caught. Um, I, I don't know. I, we never did that. And I know you guys, maybe you need to do that for the experience, but I think that really to, it, it takes a little bit more work to do what we're talking about. Um, yeah, it does. I think for the sure. market research, market research and doing the initial underwriting is step one. If, if, if it doesn't work there, if it's not even close there, then just move on. And you can continue to move on. But if you find a deal that you really like, it is going to take some legwork. And there will be times that you do all the legwork and you still don't get the deal. But every time that you do that, you learn so much. So people need to really focus on, because I, I was the same way, like we, we do so much work and not get anywhere. But now that I'm where I am and I look at you guys and starting out and a lot of times, you know, you see the students who've been doing this for a year and a half and they haven't got, gotten a deal. What I like to try to remind them is, Look at everything that you learned every every time that you didn't get an LOI accepted. If you learn and you don't repeat the same mistakes and you show the brokers that, okay, I didn't get this one, but I'm in for the next one. I'm going to be here. I'm going to keep going because you're relentless and you're never going to let it go. You're going to keep Yay. on going. If you can do that with the brokers, I probably would have said that even if it wasn't the word of the day, that just came out naturally. But if you are relentless in this business, that is how you're going to eventually get that deal. Learn from every time that it doesn't work and realize that you have come a long way. Then what, she ask, said. Yeah, what she said. <laughs> then I'm going to ask a follow-up question. What does negotiating a purchase and sale agreement look like and why is it important? You might take that first. That's yeah, for Lisa. Then, yeah. Okay. So when we got started, we were starting with small deals. I was a realtor for a long time in Arizona and in Arizona, you could write your own contracts. So I, I went into it writing my own contracts. I don't really suggest that people do that, but on smaller deals, I was doing a lot of creative financing. If you know how to do creative financing and you can understand all of that, writing your own contracts, fine. You get into 50, 50 units up, maybe 30 units up because it does cost money to hire attorneys, but I definitely suggest that you hire an attorney and you have the attorney writing your contract for you. 
I have an attorney that I've worked with for many years, several years, and she learned the certain terms or the certain things that I want in my contracts. Every time I do a deal, there's something else that I'm like, oh, we got to add that into our, our contract. So a lot of it'll be experienced, but you're a good real estate broker is going to know the certain terms that need to be in the contract. It can take, and, to, and you guys can attest to this, it can take anywhere from a week to, what are we, three or four months? I mean, sometimes it's oh. three or four months. Depends on, you know, we, what, we're we working on one deal that we're still negotiating the contract. Part of it is, at first it was the holidays. We all kind of wanted to delay because of the holidays. It's been since the holidays. We're in freaking end of March right now. We're still, we're basically getting into contract now, but you know, the seller goes away. He doesn't really care. It depends on, how, you know, we go back and forth. It also depends on how realistic the seller is being. So we've been frustrated, butting heads a lot. So important to do your due diligence upfront, not have to negotiate later on. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It, it definitely is. What our strategy is, is that we like to negotiate hard upfront, hard on the LOI, hard on the PSA upfront. It's more difficult because, you know, what a lot of buyers like to do is, is they want to get the deal and they want to make it work. So they give in on everything. We did give on in on some things, but they give in on everything. And then later on, they just figure, oh, we'll just renegotiate later. And when you have hard money day one, you can't really do that. But if you don't, if you don't, there's, that's the strategy that a lot of buyers use is we'll just ask for a credit later after inspections, we'll ask for a credit. And that's great. You can do that for a deal. But I'm just telling you that if that becomes your strategy, brokers are going to be less likely to choose you. And I know brokers don't choose you. The seller does. But brokers have the influence on the sellers. So if you have that relationship with the broker, we've gotten a lot of deals that we did not offer the highest. We didn't even do the most hard money. But we got the deal because the broker told the seller, these guys are going to close and they are not going to ask for a credit and they're not going to renegotiate but you get yourself on that blacklist like Donato was talking about. And it does happen. I've had conversations with brokers and they have them and they will tell other brokers, you don't want to work with those people. They're going to ask for a couple hundred thousand dollars or whatever it is. And later on when the seller is in a weaker position and you just, the rep, your reputation's everything. And it's really going to make the difference between being successful and struggling, constantly mm -hmm. struggling. And you do have a little bit more leniency when you're submitting an offer, a letter of intent. But before you actually get under contract with the purchase and sale agreement, you need to make sure all those things are hashed out. Exactly. And just a couple of examples of things that you're going to be negotiating in the contract or pro probably in, in the LOI, actually, things like rent ready credits for units that are not ready at closing. A seller, if the seller, you know, I, what we like to do is typically we like to, as buyers, write the contract. It is better as a buyer to write the contract yourself and then send it to them. You're still going to go back and forth either way negotiating. But there are some sellers that are adamant they're going to write the contract. So if they write the contract, I guarantee you they're not putting in rent-ready credits at closing, meaning that all the units have to be ready. Any unit that's not ready at closing, then we get a credit for that. Sellers aren't going to put that in the contract. You have to make sure that you're putting it in or making sure that it's in there. What happens if seller defaults? You want to make sure that you're able to get your money back if seller defaults. Um, they're not going to put that in the contract. You have to make sure that you do. Or what happens during a material casualty, you know, an act of God or a building burns down? What happens then? A good real estate attorney is going to know all those points that you need to make sure that you have in there. And then on to the next question for Donato Callahan. What is the importance of knowing your market as it regards to making an offer and negotiating a purchase and sale agreement? One of the most important things in the process. Yes. I mean, just like Lisa was saying, right, 
there are so many things that come into doing a deal that are market specific. Everything from your interest rates to your mill rates to the brokers you're working with to the expectations on your cap, what people are willing to sell per door. So your leverage. Beyond, yeah, you're like even beyond what's going on with the loss to lease and the market rent premiums, which tell you what you can offer for the property because you know what you're going to be able to boost it to, which ultimately affects your purchase price. But just even the more, I guess, legal or government or overall regulatory system that comes with the area knowing your market the area you'll be buying in can greatly affect why you're going to pay $120,000 a door in Dallas and say that's a steal when I would never pay $120,000 a door in like Waco. This is completely different. All yeah. those things come together to say they may not seem like important bits right by themselves, but when you stack them up, it either builds into a yes or builds into a no for whether that deal makes sense. So going into PSA, knowing what's going on in the market, what the you know, deal rates are, what your exit cap is going to be, knowing all this, these bits of information will contribute to whether you're going to be able to get into a good deal. And especially when you're starting out, it's more about more important to not make a mistake than it is to hit a home run. And knowing your market is a great way to avoid making those crucial mistakes right off the bat. Yeah. And you're talking the particular town, but you really want to get granular on your area, even what's next door. What is mm -hmm. within a one mile radius? Where are residents going to work? That's a big one for me. We want to look at crime statistics. We want to make sure like we have bought properties in crime areas and we knew it because the, it was a really good deal. And there's a lot of repositioning deals that you can buy in a rougher neighborhood and you can make a lot of money. We don't like to do that anymore. Can I ask a quick follow-up question? What about how the seller pertains to submitting an LOI and the type of seller, whether it's a mom and pop or an institutional seller? And that's for Lisa. You mean as far as timing? As far as making an offer and negotiating it. You know, for me on a mom and pop, which that's how we started. I think that's how a lot of us start. Um, we made so much money and we really enjoyed doing it. And then we got into bigger deals where everything's negotiated from through the attorneys and everything else. And you do make a lot of money off of doing that. But we're kind of excited about this market coming back full circle to more of a buyer's market where we can look for smaller deals and mom and pops. Because I'll tell you what, what we used to get excited about is when a rent roll came on a napkin or, you know, like on, <laughs> <laughs> like the most yep. unprofessional, most unprofessional rent rolls in the world that most buyers pass on that because they don't know what to do with it. We loved that. The more mom and pop they were, it was direct to seller. I didn't have to go through a broker. And I love, like we would go and sit when we first started, when we moved out to North Carolina, we wanted to show we're locals because that's how it worked. And that's how we got the deals. And we would meet up with the sellers and sit in their mansions uh, and negotiate, negotiate everything face-to-face. -face. And I, I actually love that. It's, it's a lot of fun, you know, and that's how we were, we were able to get seller fine. I mean, I've got some weird seller financing stories, you know, we should talk about at some point. One of them. You can do a involves, creative financing podcast. Creative financing. For sure. I'll talk about, I'll talk about some of the stories. I mean, I was the, we were the first ones that our attorney who had been doing this for 30 years came in with a credit card. He's like, I've never seen anyone come up with a credit card for a closing, but you know, think outside the box, especially in this kind of a market, when you're a buyer, think outside the box and mom and pops who really want to sell their deals when they don't know what they're doing and they're not used to negotiating. I love that. Not to take advantage of them, but because we can put together a win-win, we can give them what they want, but then we get what we want which is, you know, with creative financing, not having to deal with the banks, especially when the rates are going up um, or, so, you know, high, 
not having to deal with the banks is priceless. I can't even stress that enough, at least for the first couple of years where you can get on your feet because you can get interest only the entire time. You can put down less money. Sometimes they'll take, I mean, I've put down $35,000 to buy a deal before. We put it on our credit card, cash advance. Are you guys hearing this? Audience? We'll do a whole podcast on just my, you know, crazy stories. Man, getting that bill would suck. (laughs) Yeah, it was scary. We were in uh, about $250,000 in credit card debt until we started selling properties and paid everything off yeah it was hard to sleep back then i'm sure but then like every risk you took though was a calculated one it wasn't i'm going i'm spending thirty-five thousand for a trip to cabo and make some hashtag best life memories this is thirty-five thousand dollars in debt as you know purchasing this cash flowing asset that i'm going to be able to increase in value with this specific plan put all of your money in crypto yolo Oh, oh my gosh no, I put, I put a lot of money in crypto because of you, because you told me yeah. to, and I don't know, I don't even want to look at that anymore. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was very calculated when we had a lot of debt. We always knew that though, that at some point we're going to be able to sell these properties, pay that debt off. And it did when it flipped, it, it really flipped, but we were paying thousands of dollars every month in interest on these credit cards. Cause we can only pay minimum payments. So I, yeah, I could tell a whole story on the craziness and how we went rags to riches. Definitely want to hear that at some point. Okay. And then the final question for Donato, what is the importance of your team through the sometimes long and arduous process of negotiating the purchase and sale agreement contract? Your, your team, team is pe- very re- relentless. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And I would say the team is the thing that's going to carry you up the highest mountains or deliver you straight to the lowest valleys. hundred percent especially when you're going through a PSA negotiating process, like we have been for several months working deal for working the deal from the first time we saw probably close to five months. There are times when your entire team has done everything possible to make a deal work. You have underwritten it no less than 45,000 times. You've done the due diligence reports. You've done the loss to lease. You You presented those numbers tons of times. You've had problems. You've solved them. That created more problems. You solved them and you keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going. And eventually there's nothing left you can do. And throughout this process, in all honesty, there have been times where I'm like, I don't know if there's anything else we can do. We have, we've thrown everything at the wall <laughs> with this property. And like, I don't, it might be time to walk guys. Like we have, I don't know if there's anything else we can do. And then we, we've said that many times, haven't we? It might, it might not be working. It might not work. Mm-hmm. Many, many times. And then you're re- relentless. Yep. And then you just say like, okay, well, I guess we'll wait a day. We'll see what this happens. We'll find out. And there's been moments when I'm low and like, I just don't see how we can persevere. And then we'll have a conversation with our group and the seller. And all of a sudden we get great news and everyone's on board. It's like, okay, we're back in action. It's, Let's do this. It's definitely a roller coaster, huh? Yes. But it is definitely not an entire you know, negotiation process of this is going to work no matter what, I'm going to make it there. The truth is there's going to be risk. There's going to be times where it doesn't feel like it's going to happen. And that's just the long and short of it. It's not always going to be bright and sunny and, oh, I know this will work. Just like Lisa was saying, coming to a closing with a credit card, being that in debt, but taking calculated risks. The process when it comes to PSA, the strength of your team will get you to the closing get you to the side of the PSA. 
because they're going to be the ones that help pull you up when you have lost all confidence in your ability to keep going. And they're also going to be the ones that advocate for not only what you want now, but why you're doing this in general. When you've put in a week's worth of 18 hour days, you just can't think like, why am I even doing this? What is multifamily all for? And then you can look at your team and know, I know I'm doing this because my team needs this. They want more time with their family. They want to take their kids to soccer practice. They want to be able to move out of their parents' house. They want to be able to live independently and create these philanthropies they're interested in. Sometimes the inspiration that you have within you isn't quite enough to get over that big, you know, insurmountable hurdle. And you need the team, people you can do it for, people that you can do it with to push you through that PSA. And yeah. that's where we are today. So beautiful. Can I, can I say one follow-up thing to that? Mm -hmm. No, yeah, it was so beautiful. <laughs> you didn't say oh, relentless, you. though. Oh, <laughs> I, I took it from you. I'll give, we'll give you one more chance. Um, I was just going to say, you know, Greg and I did this on our own for a long time because we had partners that didn't work. Sometimes partnerships don't synergize. And when it didn't, we went the opposite direction. We did it by ourselves. And yeah, we could, I couldn't have done it without him. He had to bring me up when I was low and vice versa. But once we started partnering with other people, it really takes the pressure off because even when things are bad, it's more of uh, let's get, let's collaborate and get together and, and figure this out and getting other people's perspectives. Cause sometimes we just get so far in our head, like this is not going to work or we get emotional about it. We always say just keep the emotions out of this business, but I'm sorry, we're all human and it's going to happen. And so we get upset about it. And when we all talk together though, it really takes the pressure off. If yeah. you have a good team, if you're centered, if your team's not synergizing after a few months, you might want to readjust because what I've learned is being in a bad partnership or one that doesn't really work. It's like riding a bike uphill. You're just, it, it may not be the best and there's a lot of other options, you know, it may not be the best place for you. So I've even told a lot of students, it sounds like, you know, you're work, you're working out harder than your team is, or you're more motivated than they are. Maybe you want to start looking for other people. It's why peak partnership was great because I saw a lot of people who had been there for a while and they were actually kind of jump, you know, switching partnerships and you can do that. Mm -hmm. When you have a team with great chemistry, you might have one or two people saying, let's put in this LOI, this makes sense. And then you got the other side of, I'm not sure if this is going to work yeah. and you can actually spread ideas around on whether it makes sense or not. Absolutely. A team that's committed to not only each other, but also bettering their craft to the point in time where you can look at each other and say, Hey, this, our underwriter said that this deal doesn't make sense. I know the process they've taken to get to that no. If it's a no for sure from them, I can trust that and I can move on. So a team that not yeah. only supports each other, but invests in becoming a better cohesive unit makes the whole thing way much easier. And I I'm, yeah. I would say I'm very thankful to get to a point where I have been able to do like my part in the team, which is lost to lease and market research and I pour hours and in looking into it. And now as I can say, Hey, here's my analysis and here's all the reasons that I, this is why it is. And here's my process for getting here. Yeah. And now people go like, okay, don't tell me that you, you said it's yes. Okay, great. We'll, we'll ask you later. And I go, okay. Great. Well, that's, that, that's a great point. Trusting your partners and knowing like with Ryan, Ryan Woolley was our underwriter for the last many years. And when Ryan said, you know, it's this or that we trusted him, but Ryan's very conservative. So Ryan, a lot of times would be the one that would be like, oh, it's not a good deal for this reason or that reason. And me and Tyler and Greg 
are were a little bit more aggressive. I think because he's the underwriter, he they, they get a lot of the pressure. Like if it doesn't end up being a good deal, you go back to Ryan and go, Ryan, it's all your fault. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we would all be like, this is why we need to do it. And every deal has a story. So whoever it is, like Greg and I used to be the ones who we went and saw the property and then we had to convince Ryan and Tyler and they hadn't seen the property. So we started with a story. It is, you know, why is the seller selling? What's around there? Why do we think that the, the path of progress is going toward there? What's going on in the area? Where are people working? And, you know, or is there revitalization or whatever it is? But you've got to tell the story to the people that you are. And if you can't get the money raisers, your sponsor, partners, everybody on board easily there, then it might not be a good idea to keep going because then you've got to convince investors. And that's a lot harder to do, you know, mm-hmm. to to get investors in. Yeah. A strong, cohesive team improved your efficacy and efficiency. Welcome to Godfather. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I see you. Is that a, is that a quote that's, from, that's, from uh, Adam Harris? Efficacy Harish? is a word I was, that came up a lot in the Who Not How book. Mm-hmm. That's that's Solid. a good word of the day. Yeah, I'll probably bring that for, up. For another day. Yeah, we got to get mm-hmm. on the trivia time. We're like running out of time. Oh, go, go. We got like five minutes left. <laughs> Let's do it. I also, forgot about Shay, trivia. Adam plugged a really good book there, Who Not How. That is like the golden manual on building out a team and making sure that you're not just a one-man operation, one-woman operation. Read Who Not How if he, you he haven't t- read it yet. Adam handed it to me. and Adam, I haven't read it yet. But Adam handed it to me, which is pretty awesome when your son hands you a book to read. I'm working on that. Pr- I'm proud of that. Now. Good. Okay, good. So yeah, so uh, Lisa, I bought uh, that book, Who Not How, for Adam a while back, and I bought it in the 20s reading right now, Traction. So I'm glad oh that it's getting gosh. all my circulation. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Awesome. I'm thinking about doing like a book of the month for the podcast. Every month, yeah. we circulate a book. That, that's a great idea. Totally. And make, make, make us read it so that we can discuss it, or at least this, throw in something. This on. month's book of the month is Who Not How. Okay, go. so I've got my Perfect. homework. Perfect. Okay. It's a great book. Great, great I book. Ca- I carried it to the pool with me last week. I just, I didn't open it. Okay. <laughs> you got poolside, like, oh, oh no, I have I have a margarita. Oh no, yeah. oh, that's me. Oh, my hands are <laughs> yes. full. I can't possibly read something this. Like that. Oh. Yeah. yeah, I gotcha. It's great. You know, the main takeaway is, you know, find who's for yourself and be a who for someone else. You know, find what it is that you're going to do fantastic at and build a team around it and be of service and you know demand service from others in a way that helps mutually beneficial. Great. And be re- and be relentless. And be relentless. Yes, relentlessly <laughs> build your I'm I can't do it today. I'm, I'm, my part of the day is off. <laughs> I think on I win. To, on to Trivia Time. Do it. According to homestacks.com, who formed their data from Zillow.com. As of 2020, which state has the lowest median rent in the U.S.? Oh, I'm going to think, I'm thinking out loud here. I'm going to, I think it's in the Southeast. If I had to guess. Southeast. I'm going to guess Mississippi. I'm going to guess South Carolina. I don't think that's right, but I'm not really sure. Okay. You're but I agree. It's probably Southeast. Huh? It's West Virginia. Okay. Uh, what is the median rent? That's a tiebreaker. For for median. like all unit types, yeah. All, Lowest median all apartments. All those rents. Seven hundred. Five seventy-five. Seven seventy. Lisa wins. And these these answers <laughs> oh. are kind of hard to actually figure out what's most accurate because different things will come up with different answers. 
Yeah, sure. you have to figure in a small one bedroom or a studio and a three bedroom. Uh -huh. Sure. Wow. We're all moving to West Virginia. Yeah, American Southeast. So that makes sense, you know, and the whole. Yeah, yeah, for sure. According to ipropertymanagement.com, property managers from a sample across 80 metropolitan areas charge an average management fee equivalent to how much of the total monthly rent? Question, is this for multifamily or like single family rentals? No, it depends on the amount of units. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because if I'm doing like a one to four unit, I'm going to expect 10%, maybe in a high cost or high competitive market, maybe up to 12, maybe a bottom out in eight. But we're getting all the way up to our hundreds of units, you know, we're talking. Yeah, you really have to factor in everything here because it, it everything all property management on rental properties. 6%. I want to say five. Is 8.49. Mm. Okay. Pretty expensive. We paid 8%. We've paid 8%, but the, the thing is, is when you have smaller properties, you might pay 8%. We just recently did when we sold that property. Um, but that included property manager. So your payroll is lower because all you're going to be paying is maintenance on smaller properties. Um, that's why, because it's like, you know, you have a single family, you're not paying a payroll for an on-site person. You're just paying that percentage. That makes sense. According to ipropertymanagement.com again, as of 2022, Arkansas has the highest vacancy rate of units in the U.S. What is the vacancy rate in Arkansas? 15%. Yeah, all units. 15%. I'm going to go, go 18%. It is 12.9%. Oh, geez. Yeah. It's still not terrible. Across the entire state, 88% occupied. Mm -hmm. That's that's not bad. Yeah, not too bad. Not ideal, but yeah. Thank you for listening to the Commercial Multifamily Lions Den podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure to leave us a like, subscribe, and share with anyone you think can gain value from today's episode. What obstacles are you facing? Let us know in the comment section below, and we'll get to it in a future episode. If you're interested in passively investing with us, you can go to am-multifamily.com, or you can email fia at am-multifamily.com. Those links will be in the show description, along with the Lion's Den Facebook page and website. Thank you, and have a roaring day. <laughs> Makes me laugh every time. Oh, oh I love that. Oh, it's the best <laughs> part of my day. <laughs>